The COVID-19 pandemic will affect the clinical and biomedical research workforce for years to come. In particular, there's growing evidence that pandemic-associated disruptions have had a disproportionate effect on women's personal and professional lives, and that they could have lasting negative consequences for their career trajectories. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Reshma Jagji, Deputy Chair in the Department of Radiation Oncology and Director of the Center for Bioethics and Social Sciences in Medicine at the University of Michigan. Dr. Jagshi has co-authored a perspective article about COVID-19 and equity for women in medicine. Dr. Jagshi, before the pandemic, what was known about the landscape for women in academic medicine, such as their representation in various fields, their likelihood of holding leadership positions? What did that look like? So even before the COVID-19 pandemic began, we knew that there were persistent sources of underrepresentation of women in positions of power and influence in the field of medicine. Women had not assorted into the various medical specialties equally, and the higher paid specialties had higher representation of men. And we also saw that women were in the small minority in positions of senior most leadership and influence, constituting only 18% of department chairs and deans, although they now constitute 50% of the medical student body. How then has the COVID-19 pandemic affected women in academic medicine differently from men, either at work or in their personal lives? So the COVID-19 pandemic has really highlighted and in some ways amplified the challenges that pre-existed the pandemic that led to that underrepresentation that I described. And so those mechanisms included unconscious biases, overt discrimination and harassment, and gendered expectations of society, particularly regarding the division of labor. And so women have historically been expected to perform more of the caregiving roles, both at the home and also in the workplace. So we know that women are typically overrepresented in clinician educator pathways, underrepresented on the tenure track. And when the pandemic broke out, as we all know, the profession of medicine had to pivot immediately to deliver care rapidly in the virtual environment, to teach in the virtual environment, to deliver urgent care in the workplace. And many of the service needs associated with that transformation within the workplace fell on women's shoulders. And in addition, as sources of usual childcare and elder care went away, you could no longer send your kids to the neighbors, the nanny couldn't come in, one did not have access to daycare or schools, that suddenly led to a situation within which women were disproportionately bearing the greater burden of increased caretaking responsibilities, both in the workplace and at home. You write in your perspective article that the disruptions that have come with the pandemic have presented both challenges and opportunities for ensuring equity and reaping the benefits of diversity in academic medicine. Can you talk about the decisions that institutions have had to make over the past year? How have they exacerbated or mitigated the barriers for female faculty? I think that there really remains a lot to be seen and that the reactions that occur in the next few months and years will actually determine the ultimate impact of the pandemic on equity. Certainly the early decisions had to be made in an environment of tremendous urgency. And it's quite understandable that processes, for example, choosing who is in charge of the COVID command structure were made in a matter of hours. They were not made in that purposeful, decelerated form of decision-making that is optimal for equity-minded leadership. 
But we now have an opportunity to reflect back on who led, who supported, and how the decisions may have inadvertently led to challenges for individuals who were less well represented in leadership. There was a comment in a webinar I was conducting a few weeks ago where a participant said, you know, I've been so impressed at how nimbly and quickly our leaders have addressed challenges that they themselves have experienced in their own lived experiences. But they sure haven't been able to do the same for things that they themselves haven't experienced because many of them haven't taken the time to appreciate that not everyone's lived experiences are the same as their own. In another perspective article, Kay discusses misogyny in academic medicine. What role would you say individual physicians and educators can play in exposing and combating gender-based harassment and bias in the workplace? I think that it's such an important piece. And I think that the narratives and the stories really do resonate. Um, I am a quantitative scientist by training, but I also do qualitative research. And I do think that the stories speak volumes. In the National Academies report, there were stories, for example, of trying to establish boundaries, spatial, temporal, technological boundaries between work and life that was intervening. And stories like a woman locking herself in a closet where she had a laundry closet that served as her workspace because, of course, women are more likely to be in two-partner households. And often the priority goes to the individual who's slightly older or slightly further ahead in terms of educational status. And even when you're in a two-physician household, often the man is slightly older or somehow his career has taken priority, perhaps because he's in an interventional specialty that pays more, perhaps because the societal norms are that women marry men and that those men are older or have some kind of additional educational background. But in any case, she was stuck in a closet and that closet had two entrances. One had an entrance that she was able to secure. And the other had an entrance to her bathroom, which she had managed to jerry-rig with a bobby pin. But her toddler had figured out how to undo the bobby pin. And so despite her best efforts of having a screen behind her to hide the laundry and these locks on the doors, she found it very difficult in the virtual world to maintain that separation. And so I think those stories are incredibly important, as Kay has pointed out in her perspective. And I do think that we all have a role to play here. So We need top-down, leadership-led cultural transformation, and we also need ground-up, grassroots, ally-led cultural transformation. And I think Kay's piece really is a wonderful way of motivating that kind of change. And in a former perspective that uh, Michelle Mello and I contributed perhaps a year ago to the New England Journal, we even suggested some sample language that one might use when one saw some of these barriers playing out. What resources, what support do you think academic medical centers could provide to their female faculty right now to promote their well-being? So I think there needs to be recognition of the areas where women are likely to be disproportionately challenged, and then policies in place that support those specific needs. So to the extent that women are more likely to perceive hostility and incivility in the workplace, We need interventions to promote civility and respect. And there are actually demonstrated trainings to support that and to support allyship to turn bystanders into upstanders. We need to recognize that work-life integration and boundary setting tends to be more difficult for women. And so we need to build in supports within our workplace to address those issues, including when we're all on-site, again, additional sources of on-site childcare 
and flexibility and acknowledgement of the fact that even when flexibility is in place, that there may be challenges with boundary setting. So it may not be the same thing to say to a woman, you can't come into your office as it is to say to a man, you can't come into your office. And we need to be mindful of the individual impact of those decisions. Finally, looking forward and reflecting on the effects of the pandemic, what steps do you think institutions should take to support gender equity in hiring and promotion in medicine? Thank you for that very important question. So there are best practices for determining leaders and employees within organizations that begin with posting the positions, right? I often joke that we justify that Jane gets paid less than John because Jane's not the division chief and John is the division chief. And when we assume that Jane gets paid less and it's justified because she's not the division chief, of course, we assume that the process for choosing that division chief wasn't Bob, the department chair, sitting in his office and thinking about who he played golf with last weekend and saying, ah, John's a good guy. I think he's going to be the division chief. We want to start by posting positions. We want to post them in ways that don't activate biases. There is actually language in postings that can differentially solicit or discourage men and women from applying. We need to then prioritize what the criteria are for hiring. And then when we are evaluating candidates, make reference to those prioritized criteria rather than a gestalt sense of good fit. We need to engage in unconscious bias mitigation and training of all members of search committees. Search committees need to be encouraged to put forth and recruit and reach out to diverse sources of candidates. So reach out to historically Black universities, reach out to institutions where you might not necessarily have historically drawn people to your institution, but which have different perspectives that can actually encourage the collective intelligence within your organization. And then ultimately, by diversifying that workforce, use those new perspectives to identify new areas of investigation, new areas of clinical care, new areas of community outreach that will better allow your organization to serve all of society as our profession is intended to do. Thank you, Dr. Jackshree. 